much. Um, as you said, I'm Nolan Hodge. I am the youth pastor here uh, covering the pulpit while Jeff is away. And whenever I get to share the word of God with you all, I'm just really privileged um, to be able to do that. So I'm excited um, to jump into 2 Corinthians with you guys. Um, so today we'll be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. And we're in a series together walking through the book of 2 Corinthians. That's Paul's second recorded letter in scripture to the Corinthian church. And we've called this series The Cruciformed Life, A Life Shaped by the Cross, because we believe that the sacrificial love of Jesus as seen on the cross is the ultimate standard of beauty. And as followers of Jesus, we want to model that sacrificial way of living, putting aside our own rights and desires and obedience to God and out of love for others. These concepts, they're on full display in 2 Corinthians as Paul's way of life, his intentions, even his model for how he does ministry is being questioned and challenged by the Corinthian church. And they've turned to very impressive yet false teachers who Paul describes with some colorful language as false apostles, deceitful workers, super apostles, that's a, that's a good zinger, uh, and even Satan's servants. So as we read this letter, we're stepping into the middle of some relational drama. The backdrop of 2 Corinthians is that strained relationship between Paul and the church at Corinth. And so we could just read this letter kind of in isolation and glean some important truths from it, but it's important for the context of this letter that we understand the relational dynamics at play here. We're familiar with this idea. It's always easier to gauge a social situation if we understand the relationships and even the relational baggage that some people may carry. Uh, that's partially why it's socially very difficult to maybe go to a new school or to start a new job because there's pre-existing relationships there that you kind of need to get caught up on, different relational dynamics that you need to learn. And, and we, as readers of this letter between Paul and the Corinthians, uh, we have learned that Paul's heart behind this letter is, uh, is reconciliation in the middle of this conflict. Reconciliation. Mike Thornton, when he preached last week, talked about reconciliation uh, at the end of chapter 5. You can flip back to that real quick if you have your Bibles out. It's an incredibly gospel-rich passage. So 2 Corinthians 5, and starting in verse 15, he, Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. Uh, continuing on in verse 18, All of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of, reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Amen? Amen. Mike talked about how we can think of the term reconciliation in a lot of different ways, but I think Paul even defines it for us here at the very end of chapter 5 when he says that we can all be made right with God through Christ. Reconciliation is about a relationship being made right when it was once disrupted or broken. And I believe the reconciliation called for here in 2 Corinthians is actually twofold. Reconciliation between the church and Paul in that strained relationship, and also reconciliation between the church and God. 
As he urges them to be reconciled in right relationship to himself, Paul also calls them to remember their first love, to remember the God of their salvation. These things aren't separate for Paul. He can't help but litter this letter with theology and the love of God because he's not compelled by relational vengeance or jealousy, but by the cross of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's such an amazing book that we can look at some 2,000 years later. So to prove that unbreakable connection between Paul and reconciliation to God, let's just look at some of the terms that Paul uses to describe himself. We've looked at the terms he uses to describe the false teachers, but what about himself? Right at the beginning of the letter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, a minister of the new covenant, Christ's ambassadors, and here at the top of chapter 6, our, our passage today, God's partners. It seems Paul views himself as almost this middleman, this mediator, calling the Corinthians to turn back to God through the great mediator, Jesus Christ. And we'll go on to see how Paul views his whole life as very interconnected to Jesus, which is something that I desire for all of us in the Christian life. So we're continuing from chapter 5 into chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, which is talking about reconciliation between the church and God. And then we'll spend most of our time in in verses 3 to 12, which is primarily about reconciliation between the church and Paul, as Paul justifies his role as the true minister of God in a sermon I'm calling The Marks of a Minister. The marks of a minister. So before we delve into our passage today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it instructs us in living this cruciform life you've called us to. And as we recognize the relationships at play here in this letter, maybe some of us feel like Paul this morning and we felt somewhat betrayed or maybe misunderstood by those we are called to love. Lord, may this morning confirm our security in Jesus that no matter what may come, you have called us not to find power in ourselves, in our circumstances, or in the approval of others, but in the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of us feel like the Corinthians this morning. We've professed faith in Jesus, but we've been in a season of wandering or being led astray, and we need to remember our first love. Maybe we don't even have faith in Jesus this morning, so would we come to know you, this great gift that reconciles us to God and provides salvation? Regardless of where we're at on our journey, we earnestly ask, Lord, that all of us will grow closer to your heart, the heart of Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, So let's start by looking at uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 2. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Often when I get the chance uh, to preach, I like to end by connecting everything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's fun about this morning is I get to start by talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ in these first couple verses. Uh, And then uh, it continues in in chapter 5, kind of continues here into chapter 6. So at the end of chapter 5, Paul says, come back to God. That's his plea. And as we've prayed, I think there are those in the church at Corinth that genuinely accepted the message of Jesus, but were led astray by their own sin by the influence of false teachers. I think we can also assume that there were those in the church at Corinth that had never accepted the message of Jesus, have never trusted in Christ, as there often are in any church, right? 
But I do think that Paul's heart here is for the former, for those that had already accepted this marvelous gift of God's kindness, and his concern is that they wouldn't ignore it or receive it in vain. While we don't know the exact identity of these false teachers in Corinth, it's possible that some of them are what we would call Judaizers. Uh, They were Jews that had accepted Jesus, but they still emphasized adherence to the Old Testament law and works of the law as necessary for salvation. And that idea could be seeping into the church. That could be why Paul emphasizes the idea here that salvation is a gift. It's a gift of God's kindness to contrast the idea that you need to do all these works of the law in order to to win salvation. We know that the church at Corinth was a mix of both Gentiles and Jews, and it would be especially easy for Jewish, Jewish converts to ignore the message of salvation by grace through faith and just return to their former understanding of following the law. That would also make sense why then Paul quotes a passage from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah here about the restoration and salvation of Israel. So most Jewish Christians would have been familiar with this passage, Isaiah 49, 8, at just the right time I heard you on the day of salvation, I helped you. Instead of depicting salvation as this future event, restoring an earthly kingdom of law abiders, Paul says, indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. So thanks be to God that today is always the day of salvation. Even for us today, we don't have to follow a list of commandments to reach some kind of moral perfection before coming to Jesus. We just come as we are. We come freely, earnestly, openly, Because Jesus bore our sin to the cross and gave us his righteousness before God. The reconciliation between us and God is not based on ability or merit. It is a gift based on God's grace. The cross is the greatest picture of God's grace, so we fall at the feet of Jesus. If you've been in a season of wandering, God is always ready to welcome you back. He is the father of the prodigal who's filled with love and compassion. He runs to us and embraces us when we come back to him. And if you've never accepted this marvelous gift of God's kindness, then what are you waiting for? Because today is the day of salvation. Amen? Amen. So transitioning into verse 3, Paul focuses on his approach to ministry with an end goal of reconciliation with the Corinthians. So verse 3 We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us, and no one will find fault in our ministry. So this means that Paul and company are conducting their ministry in a way that is pure, with sincere intention, uh, something that has been brought into question by the church at Corinth. He'll go on to talk about that in verse 6. But let's also keep in mind that this ministry of reconciliation that we've talked about, uh, Paul is a mediator, and he's wanting to get out of the way, to live in such a way that his own personality, his own preferences, dare I say, even some of his own convictions, don't hinder people from knowing the great mediator, Jesus Christ. Now, that might sound kind of controversial, you know, what's Nolan saying up here, but let's hear Paul's own words in his first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, Even though I am free with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those that followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring those to Christ who are under the law. 
When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those that are weak, I share in their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find some common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and to share in its blessings. So I don't think Paul is being dishonest or a chameleon here, but he's aware of the culture and the context that he finds himself in. And he's getting out of the way so that the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ can be clear and without hindrance. Paul knows what is most important, and he's motivated out of love for others that all would come to know Jesus. I was reminded of this passage in 1 Corinthians here when we were preparing for the high school missions trip to Little India in Chicago this past June. Uh, we had to wear a dress code based on cultural differences and religious modesty standards because it's just a very diverse religious cultural area. And honestly, it was incredibly inconvenient preparing for the trip. But we worked through all of that because we didn't want to be a hindrance to the message of the gospel. Of course, we weren't bound by those same modesty standards that they were bound by, but we lived under those standards so that we wouldn't get in the way of the love of Jesus, right? It helped us get out of the way. In the context of the Corinthians, of course, Paul adjusted how he approached the law, right? Including if he would eat certain foods or not around certain people. Paul was willing to forgo, forgo his salary as a minister. He was willing to allow others to be more prominent than him. He was willing to work hard and to endure hardship, which we'll talk about soon. He wasn't afraid to offend anyone with the gospel, but he wouldn't allow his style of ministry to offend anyone. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. He wasn't afraid to offend anyone with the gospel, but he wouldn't allow his style of ministry to offend anyone. This ministry approach by Paul is, of course, contrasted with the personalities that have been leading the Corinthians astray. They put their personalities and preferences on full display, which is why Paul ironically calls them super apostles, right? They flaunt their qualifications and charisma so they can transform the Corinthians into their own image, not the image of Christ, because the image of Christ looks very different. I think a lot of us have seen ministry leadership that functions more like that. It's about personality, power, and attractiveness of the individual. I was a student back in the day, uh, back in the day at this Christian university called Asbury in good old Wilmore, Kentucky. And most people up here hadn't really heard about Asbury until this past February when everything kind of uh, blew up in you know, just popularity about the university. Because during an ordinary chapel service, Several students felt inspired to stick around after the chapel service, and they just continued to pray and to worship. And the service ended up lasting for 16 days, 16 days, day and night. Everyone was calling it the Asbury Revival or the Asbury Awakening or the Asbury Outpouring because it was evident that the Holy Spirit was moving and was working in the hearts of students in a really unique way. After the first week or so, it got pretty wild as people from all over began pouring into little old Wilmore, Kentucky to participate in this worship service. So I began hearing reports that celebrity, for lack of a better term, pastors and celebrity worship leaders were coming from around the globe to, to share in this chapel service. And they wanted to perform. They wanted to preach, right? Big names in Christian culture. They wanted in. And surprisingly, the administration at Asbury turned them all down 
because they didn't want to create a distraction. Asbury wanted them to get out of the way because whatever God was doing, it wasn't about big names and big personalities and big personas, impressive talent. It wasn't about any of that. It was about the work of the Holy Spirit among these students, ordinary college students. Now, it's easy for us to kind of point the finger at at other people, especially people in positions of leadership. But as Christians under the new covenant, we're all in the ministry of reconciliation. We all want to lead others to Jesus. We all are called to make disciples in the Great Commission, right? So how do we prevent the work of the Holy Spirit? Where are we causing others to stumble? Maybe it's our pride, our desire for status, our desire to always be right, to win arguments, maybe by our anger. When we're in the ministry of reconciliation and we elevate ourselves, we often put our sin on full display. But what we see in the cross, the cruciform, is that Jesus has put our sin to death. He died so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died and was raised to life for us. And it's only by surrendering ourselves to the Holy Spirit and modeling Christ's humility and sacrificial love that we can begin to understand these qualities, the marks of a true minister. Continuing in verse 4, In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. Paul is writing about this because he's having to prove his sincerity to the Corinthians. But I also think he wants the Corinthians to know what a true minister, a true follower of Jesus looks like in light of these false teachers, right? So he goes on to describe the characteristics and behaviors of authentic Christian ministry. And it looks very different than I think what the Corinthians would have expected. It might even look very different than what we expect off the top of our heads. Uh, So that's what I want to spend a good chunk of our time exploring this morning. So the marks of a minister, I really like alliteration here. So we're going to go three H's, okay? The first is hardship, The second is holiness. The third is honesty. Hardship, holiness, honesty. The marks of a minister. But first, what is Paul even talking about when he's talking about ministers? Because from our perspective, we hear minister and we just think of like a priest or a pastor or a preacher. That's not what Paul is communicating here. In the New Testament, the Greek word diakonos is often translated as servant or minister. The term diakonos actually comes from the root word diakonio, which means to serve or to wait on tables. So a diakonos was typically a household servant or someone that provided practical assistance to others. And this is actually the same word used in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus says, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul is continuing in the servant nature of Jesus. Uh, He's our suffering servant. So I think even by the word choice here, Paul is continuing this idea that they've laid down their own lives at the foot of the cross. They're no longer living for themselves. In everything they are due, they're showing that they're true ministers, true servants of God. And that shapes their motivations, that shapes their practices. So let's look at the first mark of a minister here, the first mark of a servant of God, hardship, enduring hardship. And everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We've been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights and gone without food. 
I think we can be a little desensitized to like Paul's hardships and his sufferings because he talks about it a lot. He's even talked about it several times in Second Corinthians up to this point. But it should strike us as like really strange in this context because the first evidence that Paul gives to prove he is a minister of God is by the way he suffers, right? While others brought letters of recommendation, Paul's resume, if you will, is not one of accomplishments or good things he's done, but of pain and suffering. It's kind of weird. Why is that? Paul consistently views suffering as a huge part of what it means to be a Christian because he follows Jesus the one who suffered for the sake of all, the entire world. So as Christians, we take up this call to join with Christ's suffering, especially on behalf of other people. He talks about this in Romans 8, Romans eight seventeen. Together with Christ, we are heirs to God's glory, but if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. The message of suffering is not something that's going to win quick converts. It's not something that is going to boost our attendance on Sunday morning. It's not appealing. It's not attractive, much like the cross. Yet if you've been walking with Christ for a long time, you recognize that suffering is a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus. That's why Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow him. And then he promises much suffering to his disciples That's a promise of God we don't really like to talk about too much. The Great Commission comes with great persecution. When we're following the call of Jesus, we can expect hardship. And this is the type of suffering that Paul is describing here. It's suffering that he's experienced as a result of following the call and the mission of God in his life, just as Jesus suffered to fulfill the mission of God. And while the suffering of Jesus kind of makes sense to us now as, as Christians with access to the entire Bible, the entire biblical narrative, sometimes suffering for the call of God doesn't make sense. So that's why Paul continues and says, we patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We could think of patience as like a passive thing, the ability to sit around and wait for something to happen, but that's not the idea here. One commentator says that the Greek word for patience here does not describe the frame of mind which can sit down with folded hands and bowed head and let a torrent of troubles sweep over it in passive resignation. It describes the ability to bear things in such a triumphant way that it transfigures them, it transforms them. At my old church in Louisville, Vine Street Baptist Church, shout out, uh, they had a prayer room. And there was this old needlepoint like, piece on the wall that was probably made by some old lady in like the 1970s. Uh, but it had the different fruits of the Spirit on it, right? And so love, joy, peace. And then naturally, I'm expecting the next thing to be patience. That's how I learned the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience. But instead of patience, it's had this older term, long-suffering. Long-suffering. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. The formal definition of long-suffering is, to, is having or showing patience in spite of troubles, especially those caused by other people. Do we think of long-suffering patience as a fruit of the Spirit, a characteristic of Jesus himself at work in us, to bear trouble triumphantly until it's transformed into glory? Of course, we see that in the cross, right? That Jesus bears our sin triumphantly until it's transformed into glory. Paul says in verse 5, we've been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, 
endured sleepless nights, gone without food. And for the sake of time, I won't go into like every little specific of Paul's physical sufferings, but I do want you to see the passion of Jesus here, the passion narrative of Jesus here specifically, because I believe that's what Paul thinks about when he is going through suffering. He thinks about the suffering of Jesus, who was also beaten. He was held captive. He faced angry mobs. He was sleepless in the garden of Gethsemane. He was thirsty and was only given sour wine. Who goes to the cross out of obedience to the Father and out of love for his creation to transform this instrument of suffering to an instrument of glory. And that's the same love that Paul emulates towards the Corinthian church, which gives him the ability to endure and be patient in hardship. If Paul valued his personal comfort over the call of Christ, the church would be very different. I say that for the Corinthian church, but I say that also for the big C church, us today. If Paul valued his personal comfort over the call of Christ, the church would look very different. That should be convicting to all of us because we live in a culture that strongly values personal comfort. And if we're honest, a lot of the decisions we make in the day-to-day involve around personal comfort, involve around personal safety. There's a way to approach your faith that is very comfortable, very safe, but we have to ask ourselves the question, is that the call of following Jesus? You may be called into uncomfortable or unsafe situations to do the work of Christ and to share his love with others. Sometimes we try to like compartmentalize that in a thing called missions and say, you know, the missionaries are the ones that go out and suffer. But as Christians, we're all on mission, and the Holy Spirit may very well compel us to take risks for the glory of God where he's placed us. And the irony is, the more we suffer, the more we are actually comforted. So back in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 4 to 7, Paul says, He, meaning God, comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to comfort them with the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. Comfort is not intrinsically a bad thing, but we find it in God. We don't find it by surrounding ourselves in safety and luxury, right? A final note here on hardship. I do want to be somewhat careful as we talk about hardship and suffering because we face hardship for many reasons in this life. So we've been talking about suffering for the call that God has placed in our lives to spread the gospel, to make disciples, But I also recognize, too, that we have a tension here because we live in a fallen world where things can just be so wrong, where we face sin, pain, and death all the time. So I don't want to sugarcoat the dark realities of living in a very messed up world. By no means do I want to minimize hardships and tell you to simply endure through situations of neglect or abuse because that's not in God's plan at all. God is also a God of justice. He sees, he knows, and he mourns with you. And as a church, we mourn with you, and and we're here to bear each other's burdens, right? To provide care, to alleviate the suffering of each other. So even when he seems far away, the suffering servant is calling to you from within your suffering, inviting you not to suffer alone. So the second mark of a minister here is holiness, and we could think of this as God's power at work in us. Verses 6 to 7. 
We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. So when we talk about holiness, we're directly talking about the Holy Spirit. Paul attributes these qualities to the Holy Spirit at work in them, to God's power at work in them. And throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is constantly equated to the power of God. And that's resurrection power. So in his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So even in the middle of all this hardship and suffering that they're going through, they're being filled with resurrection life by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that even when their bodies face all this physical turmoil, beaten, hungry, sleepless, they're still receiving vitality and goodness and life. Earlier in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul writes, That's why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. So here we begin to see like a theme that Paul is pulling out in this passage, which is seemingly contrary, oh, the seemingly contrary nature of the Holy Spirit and living in what we might call the upside down kingdom of God. Uh, We see this especially if we jump down to verse 10 in our passage, the seemingly contrary nature of the Holy Spirit. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we have, we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing and yet we have everything. When we operate out of our own power and ability, we are slaves to our circumstances. Our circumstances will determine our actions, our mood, even our character. And this isn't rocket science for us as humans, right? When things are going well, we feel happy, we feel content. But the minute our circumstances dip, all bets are off, right? But based on what we know about Paul's sufferings, as he's made clear, how easy would it be for him to lack patience and kindness and love? If we've been wronged as many times as Paul has been wronged, how easy would it be to retaliate, to become bitter, to become hard and cold? As Pastor Jeff would say, to pick up the weapons of Babylon. And if we're honest, that'd be pretty, a pretty normal human response, right? To intense hardship. And many of us are still learning. We're still walking with Jesus and we're still healing in that regard. But the Holy Spirit, the power of God, does this amazing work in our hearts so that instead of picking up the tools, the weapons of Babylon, we take up these weapons of righteousness. Of course, Paul is speaking metaphorically here. He's mirroring the stance of a soldier with a sword in the right hand and a shield in the left. So what does attack and defense look like for a servant of God? Well, first, we're ultimately combating spiritual opposition and evil in the world. As Paul talks about in in Ephesians 6, verse 12, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And, And in that passage, he'll go on to talk about the full armor of God, describing the shield as a shield of faith, and describing the sword as the sword of the spirit, right? We cannot expect to fight a spiritual battle without the Holy Spirit on our side. But even amid that spiritual battle, we are faced with flesh and blood, human opposition. And I think that's mainly what Paul is referring to here when he goes on to talk about how they are perceived and treated by others in verses 8 to 9 in our passage today. 
maybe even how they're being perceived and treated by those in the Corinthian church. Yet Paul's call is to respond in righteousness. This, of course, rings with Sermon on the Mount truth from Jesus, who says, love your enemies, do good to them, pray for those that hurt you. And can we just pause and talk about how countercultural that idea is? I think we're used to like hearing that verse and hearing those ideas at church, and we can think of them on a broad level and be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But when we contextualize it and think about our own enemies very honestly, it's incredibly difficult. It's even contextualized here in this situation between Paul and the Corinthians because there is some enmity that's creeping in to this relationship. And if you read a lot of Paul, you understand that he's a pretty clever, uh, if not sassy guy. And while all of this is framed by the suffering he experienced in the province of Asia on his missionary journey, the Corinthian church has also been a source of emotional pain and suffering for Paul. The Corinthian church has challenged Paul's identity and authority as as, as an apostle. They've lacked support for him. They've made false accusations. They've slandered him. They've even withheld their love from him. Yet we see in verses 11 to 13 that Paul is still motivated by love for them. He doesn't come at them with weapons of warfare, but weapons of righteousness. There are people in my life that I probably wouldn't call my enemies, but there are people that I withhold righteousness from, where it's much easier to pick up the sword of anger than the sword of the Spirit. It's a lot easier to pick up the shield of defensiveness and self-assertion instead of the shield of faith. So instead of responding with sin when we're sinned against, we can respond with these character qualities of Jesus himself, not by our own effort, but by the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Speaking of fruits of the Holy Spirit with patience and long-suffering, these qualities that Paul lists here, purity, understanding, patience, kindness, sincere love, that all reflects the fruits of the Spirit that he talks about in Galatians. And if we pursue holiness apart from the Holy Spirit, we will fail. And if we want to identify a true minister, a true servant of God, we should see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them, producing holiness in them, even in difficult circumstances. The third mark of a minister here in verse 8, we serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. The third mark of a minister, honesty, serving God amidst social pressure. A mark of a minister, a servant of God, is to remain consistent and honest in devotion to God, regardless of how other people respond, whether bad or good. In Christian circles, I've often heard the term fear of man to describe the mentality of constantly worrying about what others might think of you. That expression originates from the book of Proverbs in contrast to the fear of the Lord, where we live to worship God not the opinions of others. A faith that is built on the foundation of others' opinions does not last. It's not a firm foundation. My wife Haley and I were were discussing this idea earlier this week. We began talking about how our experiences with our families were very different regarding Christianity. For Haley, she grew up in mostly a non-religious family. Some of her family members would kind of claim Christianity out of a cultural context or a tradition, but it didn't really affect their lives a whole lot. But some members of her family are actually very opposed to Jesus. Uh, Haley came to Jesus as a young adult and had a close family member that wouldn't come to her baptism, that wouldn't even come to our wedding out of opposition to her lifestyle of following Jesus. 
So for Haley, coming to Christ meant enduring the negative opinions of others that were close to her. It meant disrespect and ridicule and hurt. For me, on the other hand, I grew up in a Christian family. My dad is a pastor to this day. So I didn't face like any sort of negative backlash for following Jesus. In fact, it was actually more advantageous in my family dynamic that I was a Christian. So not to knock Christian families because raising your children to know Jesus is the right and beautiful and God-honoring thing to do, but I had to go on a journey of my own in middle school and high school wrestling with this question. Am I only claiming Christ so that my parents will be happy with me? And maybe some of our students are even asking that question too. We don't stop serving God when people say negative things about us, but guess what? We also don't serve God to make people just say positive things about us. We love God and we serve him because we've experienced this love of God as revealed in Jesus for ourselves, and we've been given a spirit. So regardless of the opinions of any person, we're honest about who we are in Christ and we abide in him. We live in a culture, especially in this age of the internet, where opinions are just plastered all over. So if it was bad for Paul then, I couldn't even imagine what it'd be like now. He'd have to dedicate a section of this letter to like, those angry tweets that the Corinthians wrote about me, right? And as a youth pastor, like, my heart especially goes out to the younger generation in the room that's having to grow up and develop while navigating this social-digital landscape that wants nothing but to be the source of either your approval or the source of your demise. Yet nothing is new under the sun, and while it's easy for negative words and slander to get under our skin, it's just as easy for flattery and approval to puff us up. So we need to take a step back, We need to focus. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us. We remain honest. We remain true. We remain consistent. And that's when we shine the light of Jesus. The marks of a minister, hardship, holiness, honesty. Wrapping up, I'd like to briefly just focus on verses 11 to 13. Oh, dear Corinthian friends, we have spoken honestly with you, and our hearts are open to you. There is no lack of love on our part but you've withheld your love from us. I'm asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us. Now, I started this sermon talking about the context of relationship and reconciliation. And at the end of chapter five, the the plea was to come back to God. And here the plea at the end of chapter six, or kind of middle of chapter six, I guess, open your hearts to us. Come back to God. Open your hearts to us. And not to try to wrap everything up in like a nice little bow. But even in these verses, I see the characteristics of a minister of God, the marks of a minister. There is acknowledgement of pain and hardship in this relationship as Paul mourns the state of the relationship. There is a commitment to love, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And of course, there's honesty and, and this kind of raw honesty in the way he's communicating with them. And knowing Paul, the pleas come back to God from chapter 5 and open your hearts to us in chapter 6, they're connected. His main motivation for this plea that they would open their hearts to us, it's not that he'd just receive approval for them, but that they'd be restored to God, that their hearts would be open to Jesus, who's made a way for everyone to be reconciled to God. So may those things echo in our hearts. For the ministers of God in the room, may we desire uh, for others to be restored to God in the same way, that in everything we do, we look to Christ who has modeled this sacrificial love that welcomes all into the kingdom of God. And for those of us that might be wandering, 
May the love of God, this gift of grace, come into your life that you would be reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So all praise be to him. Let's pray. God, in this letter, you're calling us to a lot, and it can seem intimidating and and challenging, but you've promised us your spirit, so you are with us. In hard times, you are there. In challenging relationships, you are there. As we live as your ministers, would you transform us in such a way that we get out of the way, that we wouldn't live to elevate ourselves, but to lead others to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift that you've given us, that we can come to you freely and be reconciled to God. May we not ignore that truth, but may we respond. Holy Spirit, convict each of our hearts that we would respond this morning wherever we're at. Lead us, guide us, motivate us. It's in the mediating name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.